Hi there, this is Matt Wakeling and you're listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. Produced here in Sydney, Australia and zoomed all around the place through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and lots of other good podcatcher things. Now, just a little announcement. We're taking a very short break. We'll be back on July the 8th or 9th, 2017, depending on what part of the world you live in, uh, with with all new episodes. And we've got some great stuff lined up, including uh, some guests from the UK, from the United States, and here in Australia as well. And uh, we're really excited about the Sydney Guitar Festival. So there'll be a bunch of news on that coming up very, very soon. But to keep you occupied in the meantime, I've packaged together two of uh, two of my first interviews. I think they were interviews five and nine from two of my favourite Victorians, Brett Kingman and Bob Spencer. Now, Brett Kingman is um, a great player, plays with James Rain, has been a member of James' band for the last 30 years or so. He was also a member of the Uncanny X-Men and uh, plenty of other really important Australian artists. He also has, um, he was one of the pioneers really of high quality YouTube gear reviews. Now gear reviews are all over the net now of course, but there's still only a handful that are done you know, with a lot of quality and a lot of integrity and, uh, and knowledge. And Brett is certainly one of those guys. His site, check this out, has had over 20 million hits in the last eight or so years and it's just going from strength to strength. So it was great talking to Brett. And Bob Spencer, guitar player with Skyhooks and The Angels. And uh, Black Cat Moan, love those guys. And his own solo work he's working on now. Now, I got to speak to Bob Spencer because Brett Kingman got me in touch after I interviewed him. So I really appreciated that. So it only seemed fitting that I paired these two guys together for this in replay episode of the Guitar Speak podcast. So here we go. First we'll hear from Brett Kingman, then we'll move on to the interview with Bob Spencer. Welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Hey, um, you've just come off tour uh, with James Rain. Can you tell me a bit about that? Sure. Uh, We've been on a number of tours for the last, gosh, nearly three years. Uh, We've been supporting Chris Isaac. That was the last tour that we've just finished and before that we were on a um, sort of a greatest hits run mm-hmm. and we did an Australian crawl greatest hits run James Rain plays Australian crawl and before that we were out on the road with Rod Stewart uh, yeah and before that we've been on an Apia tour so it's been a never-ending um, tour in terms of being at the airport every pretty much every Thursday or Friday morning for the last two or three years. And uh, I'm kind of glad that it is over for the next few months at least. Yeah, sure. Not because I don't like playing with James, but because I'm happy to be here on weekends with my wife and daughter who are getting a little shirty and understandably. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Good to hear. So, um, So you're doing some supports and headlines and festivals and things and by the sounds of things. Yeah, lots of headlines and uh, uh, support to Rod Stewart and a sort of a co-headline with Chris yeah. over the last three or four weeks. So it's been interesting playing humongous venues and then some modest pubs as well, which I prefer actually because people are right in your face. Yeah, cool. I might just back up. What, what got you started playing guitar in the first place, Brett? There's an interesting question. Um, I think it was actually walking into an older brother's into a friend's older brother's bedroom in 1971 when I was probably not much older than eight well I wouldn't have been older than eight in 1971 
and hearing Slade Alive, which was a live album that Slade, the glam band from the early 70s, put out. Very heavy album. And the power that was coming through those speakers just transformed me into something like an Exocet missile. So I thought, I, that's it. I'm going to be a guitar player from that moment on. Okay. Awesome. The, I was programmed um, to, to be a guitar player. And so I, I ran around school pretending I could be a guitar player until I actually got an acoustic guitar, <laughs> which was a $20 Suzuki. And then I was obsessed with learning how to play the thing. And, and um, I had some formal lessons for about a year and a half when I was nine, 10 years old from a elderly lady uh, who unfortunately passed away after that period of time. So I, uh, but I'd elevated quite quickly through classes and um, even at that young age. So I just continued on my own journey after that and taught myself and cool. spent 86 hours every day until I was 17 or thereabouts, at least six hours every day practicing. Wow. And who were you listening to around then? So after Slade, well, what, what was the other big thing? We're talking about 72, 73 onwards through to 1982. So it was the concurrent releases at that time. And pretty much every classic rock album between 72 and 1980 is still acknowledged as, as the best period of, you know, or the golden age of classic rock. So that's what I grew up on. And so it was initially it was David Bowie and it was Slade and it was T-Rex, the kind of the English guitar-driven pop glam stuff I suppose and then it gravitated to um, or graduated rather to Zeppelin I remember when John Bonham died I wore a black armband to school (laughs) Sabbath uh, all of the you know yes um, who were challenging still are in terms of technical uh, prowess you know from Steve Howe and trying to learn his stuff and I still listen to those bands um, so that, that's who it was. And then 77 rolled in and I was a skateboarder and Devo and the Sex Pistols and those sorts of bands were yeah. in vogue with that community. Uh, so I went off on a sort of a punk tangent for a little bit, but it was not challenging enough in terms of I could, I could play that stuff easily. Mm-hmm. So I then went back into sort of tougher stuff to play. Frank Zappa, Van Halen appeared, Metallica appeared early on in the 80s. Um, yeah. da 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 yeah, all the usual suspects. Hendrix and Clapton never got a look in, and rarely do today. I have hardly any of the. I don't have any Clapton records on any medium. I think I've got his Robert Johnson homage somewhere. Uh, and Hendrix, I'm only kind of getting my dipping my toes into now. Okay. So, um, I, I've read you were doing gigs when you were 12. What what sort of gigs does a 12 year old pull in Victoria? Well, twelve-year-old doesn't really pull many gigs at all. He <laughs> was. We're talking about Victoria in the nineteen seventies. No internet, no mobile phones, couple of television stations. I was playing with the local sort of square dance band that were had a family at my school, and they were called the Chubbies. And so I was invited to come and play along with the Chubbies. Nice. Uh, and I'd sent a cheerio to my still friend Dick Custerson, who was the drummer at the time. And, uh, yeah, and then after that it was I was involved in every school band that I could talk my way into. Most of them were um, hosted by kids that were considerably older than me, and so we used to jam Zeppelin and Sabbath day in and day out. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. 
And um, play parties and stuff. Yeah, right. So when did you move into professional playing? Uh, shivers me timbers. I think that would have been if we're talking sort of national level professional playing. I was always paid to play guitar at churches and stuff like that. I was. I was. I'm now a very much lapsed Catholic, but in the early '70s, we, I didn't have much of a choice, so I was playing weddings and funerals, and they used to pay. Okay. Uh, funnily enough, and then, um, but on a rock and roll level, I had a little band here in Melbourne called. I was part of a little band called the Adventure, who were the first sort of indie band to be appear on Countdown without a record deal. And then after that, I was recruited into the Uncanny X-Men when Ronnie was uh, had domestic restrictions put on him. He wasn't allowed to tour for a couple of years. So I was brought in at a pretty young age and to finish off the album and then go on tour with them. Cool. So this is like early 80s, I guess, when they were when they were. That hitting. was about 85, 86. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Cool. And I stayed with them for a, nearly a year, uh, but I had to leave them in the lurch, which I didn't want to do because, but I had to because I'd met James Rain at a nightclub and he'd just come back from LA having finished his first solo album sessions mm-hmm. and broken up Australian and split up Australian Crawl not long before that and said, I hear you play pretty good guitar, do you want to join my band? So course i said yes and the, the next morning i was part of his band and had to give the news to the x-men who were not very happy so <laughs> understandably and sure. but fortunately my brother scott stepped in uh he was very young at the time but he, he did it and um the tour continued and everybody was reasonably happy cool me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome so early james rain i'm thinking tracks like um hammerhead i used to love that i was yeah, I was probably just. I'm probably. A, I was born in '71, so by the time Hammerhead came out, I was sort of getting into playing and 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 a little. So that was that was a fun track. Yep, Hammerhead, Fall of Rome, Rip It Up. Uh, that first album had a lot of great songs on it. Yeah, and we're toying with. We're actually toying with the idea of touring it because it's, it'll be its 30th anniversary, believe it or not, next year. Wow, awesome. That's how long I've been involved with, with James and his family, who I'm now married to his sister, Elizabeth. Ah, okay. And I'm talking to you from the kitchen in which the Rain family grew up in. <laughs> <laughs> we ended up buying the family home. There you go, there you go. Yes. So the Kingmans and the Rains are now ensconcibly, uh, in, no, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, inter- intertwined. Yeah. So you've Fine. got to play for him now. Well... Uh, I don't have to, and <laughs> I've refused the current tour that he's about to, or, or politely declined, I should say, the current sure. tour that he's about to embark on with Mark Seymour. Oh, they're, okay. They're yep, going out that. to do a, a national run together in an acoustic configuration, and um, Josh Owen, who is now playing the other guitar, and we both share lead and rhythm duties in the band, uh, is a Melbourne-based player, phenomenally talented, very classy and a lovely bloke he will be going out to do that run with james so that will be something special for people who go to those gigs because he will bring an entirely new palette of um approach to it and it'll be great and i will rejoin them when the summer festivals start in late october okay cool so just backing up then after you joined james's band um 
you still seem to be pulling a lot of sideband sort of gigs. You you became quite quite well known as a, a sideband to choose for touring and records. Yeah, and I, I became a bit of a hired gun, which was nice. So I ended up in uh, Daryl Braithwaite's touring uh, act for a while because um, he'd just released The Edge and that, it was recorded by all of the same personnel pretty much that okay. did James's early work uh, and written by Simon Hussey, who co-wrote a, 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 a lot of those tunes. Um, and James's first album. Anyway, so I ended up in Daryl's band. Then I ended up in Vicar and Linda's band. Uh, I was in Deborah Burns' band for a while. I was in. Um, I was a hired gun for a fellow here, a producer here called Mark Forrester. So I played a lot on um, on uh, Peter Andre stuff and Shantuzzi stuff. Yeah. And, uh, That's another rain, isn't it? Didn't David Rain? Shantuzzi's for, yep. for a couple of years. Yep, yep, that's right. There you go. Uh, and then I was in, I did Hair, the musical, for eight months or something, as a, you know, just a guitar player in the pit. Okay. And then you... I, uh, sorry? Oh, are you are you a good reader? Is that how you got, is that Shocking part of your reader, thing? which was unfortunate because I had to learn 43 pieces of music <laughs> inside two weeks. Uh, I don't know why I said yes to that gig. Yeah. I think just, nothing was happening for a couple of months, so I just said, okay. Sure. So that was very challenging, uh, but I did learn it, and um, to their satisfaction, apparently, and we had a lot of fun until I, I got sick of doing eight shows a week and had to pull out for um, boredom and health reasons. It was driving me completely mental, so I stopped that. And then I'd, I was in a band called Bigger Than Jesus in Melbourne for a while, which was fronted by uh, Steve Lucas from X, and it was very heavy thrash band. Mm-hmm. A lot of fun. Um, but we were insane party animals and it was getting to be uh dangerous so <laughs> so i left that and um ended up back on the road with james after he came back from the rio tour the first one brad robinson took me back into the band Great. and uh i haven't really left i haven't really been off since but i still do a lot of uh corporate work with people like joe camilleri and ross wilson and um a lot of the heritage acts, so I know all of those guys pretty well, and um, I've had you know a lot of fun with them on boats, cruise ships, and corporate tours, and the Apia tour, and those sorts of things. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, these guys could hire anyone. What, what, what do you think it takes to be a really good sideman and just to keep working as you have? Well, the first thing that I know that I look for, and the band, and James looks for, because we're really the only constant members in his band, apart from Johnny Watson, the drummer is personality. If you can't get on with somebody or there's something that irks you about them, regardless of their um, talent, you're you're a fool if you you go any further um, in terms of saying, yeah, come on tour because you'll drive each other mental. And that has happened in the past where, you know, you just don't even want to get in the same car as a person, let alone sit next to them on a plane or something like that. <laughs> Unfortunately, not too often. So you've got to be very careful about uh, amicability. And I think that I try to be tolerable to most people and that's what's got me through. And after that, it's it's your ability to cut the gig, of course. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, first and foremost is your ability to be social and um, and then uh, you've got to be able to cut it, of course. If you can't cut it, well, then, you know, 
you're not going to get the job either. So I've I've been able to adapt myself to all of the styles so far required by all of the above aforementioned, mm-hmm. which hasn't been hard because they're all pretty classic rock and and uh, or pop. And you know I grew up on the Stones and Keith Richards and Nile Rogers later on after with all those other acts that I, we spoke about later. Mm-hmm. So my and when I actually study a style, let's say funk, Nile Rogers, I I will absolutely throw myself into that into Nile's head for three four months until I can until I've nailed it. Not just from a technical level, mm-hmm. but from from a from, a, uh, from a, a, the object objective approach level as well, the psychological level of how to approach that style. Uh, so that's helped me. A lot, I think, in in terms of um, being able to play various styles, I can even bluff my way through jazz if I have to. <laughs> pretty pretty loosely though. Sure, uh, we've all we've all bluffed our way through some jazz. I've got a genre I call wedding jazz. It means yeah. I it means I can play um, moon dance in any key you want. Yeah. Um, but I need a chart for all the things you are. Yeah, and uh, even if I had a chart thrown in front of me with all the diminished and elevens and thirteens and all that stuff, see, I don't know anything about that stuff. Sure. So I have to, I have to play by ear, which is fortunate because I can play by ear. That's how I pretty much learned to play with sitting in front of the television and playing with anything that came along, or the radio, and not restricting myself to. I'm not going to play that. That's you know, that's in three four. It sounds, you know, we'll see. I'm uh, everything, mm-hmm. so, and. That's what I teach students today: is to not to restrict yourself. Cool. Anything but. When um when you've got a gig or tour coming up, do you? Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about your your gear review channel in a little bit, but you seem like you've got a bit of a collection of stuff. Yeah. Do you have a go-to rig, or do you tailor it depending on the artist, in terms of gear, guitars, amps, pedals? Well, nowadays I use fractal audio stuff on stage pretty much exclusively. Okay, yeah. Uh, I even have an affiliation with fractal audio. I'm, I'm a beta tester for them now. Um, I do demo, the video demos for them. Mm-hmm. But the reason I got in bed with them in the first place was because I've always favoured cutting-edge technology, always, in, you know, not just musical but um, computer-wise as well. Okay always had an interest in it and always try to exploit the most that I possibly can out of whatever the medium is. Um, so the XFX was really, for me, an extension of things like Digitex 2101 that appeared in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. That was had the tube built in. It was That's right. A couple of units high. Yeah. Yeah, yep. cool. All that stuff I've, I've mucked around with um, and used with abandonment on stage at one point or another. So the XFX for me was the um, the pinnacle of that sort of technology. So I just bought one. Yeah, awesome. And I haven't looked back since. And that was uh, three or four years ago, I think. Awesome. Now I, I have all of their products and it's pretty much all I use on stage. The front of house guys, be it at a pub or an arena with 25,000 people in it, will not let me use an amp or anything else because it just sounds so great. Yeah. And they're getting gorgeous stereo feeds with no spill. Um, I can dial up any amp or cabinet I want from you know a couple of hundred different sorts as well as the effects. Yep. The controller board sits in front of me. It's connected by one XLR cable, so there's not a I don't even need to feed a power. It's just ace. And I've got two wedges in front of me, blasting 500 watts each in stereo at my face. You know that's just 
you know, people say they miss their cabs, you should try that. <laughs> That's cool. So, I was going to ask about cabs. Like, so with the James Rain tour, is that like, are you using any foldback for that or you just got the blasting wedges? Wedges in front of me. Okay. Uh, if, they're, if they're huge stages like, um, I don't know, one of the big outdoor shows or one of the big arenas like Rod Laver down here in Melbourne, I'll have satellite wedges planted on the sides of the stage as well because I use a wireless so I can run around and make it look a bit animated. Yeah. And the problem with um, wedges is as soon as you step, you know, four or five feet away from them on either side, they're fairly directional and you lose it. So I've got sure. to have satellites planted around, which is great. I love that. And the other guys don't mind it either. So that's it works out fine. Innies I've never toyed with. And won't until they work out some sort of spatial dimension algorithm that allows you to kind of feel where you are because at the moment it's too two-dimensional, yes. one-dimensional almost. You know, you can't get away from it. You can't get a feeling of space. Yes. Um, to a great degree. So, yeah. uh, no, I haven't gone down any of your path yet. Okay, okay. cool. With um, with the axe, I've talked to a few guys who are using it. Peter Northcott up here in Sydney, Michael Dolce yep. up here. Yep. Um, we all collaborate. Yeah, cool. That's awesome. The um, you would know probably more than than most. Like the history of modelling, the early modellers, even if they sounded kind of good, mm. I, I used to have one of those um, kidney bean pods, and some of the sounds were usable, but it never felt really great. Do you reckon Axe has covered that bridge? Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. I do. Yes. Yeah. Uh, cool. The Johnson J station was a great one from that period. Okay. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. The desktop sort of thing, hey, and they're yeah, not doing amps right. and things. Yeah, appeared at about the same time or not long after, maybe a month after the um, the first Line 6 pod yeah. came out. So there was obvious comparisons. I preferred the J-Station. Uh, just the sounds were a bit more organic and mm -hmm. uh, better. And even it, it still stands pretty – it still stands up today, I reckon. Uh, but to answer your question, the XFX, which is the really the only recent one that I'm – familiar with line six haven't availed me a helix yet and Kemper will probably never let me try one of their gigs because they know that i'm associated with fractal audio so sure. that's that's okay and that's understandable uh although disappointed because i would like to try them at some point mm -hmm. but a lot of people want an axe effects to do exactly what an amp does you know i want it to sound like a 1959 super lead plexi and i want to feel that sound level pressure from you know a, a, an early uh basket weave tv quad box I don't do that. I use I, 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 If I wanted that, I'd get one on stage. So I actually use it for what it is capable of, and um, and cut all of those kind of fence barriers, and not not to be too particular about making it emulate something else. Although they're great starting blocks. Sure. Uh, but you know, I might like uh, something like a Caroline Triptic amp through a one by twelve cabinet, or modelled, of course, uh, just on a on a in front of 20,000 people just because the sound is focused more. So, yeah, I've never been fussed about the absolute accuracy of the modelling, uh, but it is a good starting block. Yeah, sure. I'm one of the outside square thinkers, I think. Um, yeah. others want that, well, it doesn't sound like the 65 twin to me. Well, get a 65 twin, man. You know? <laughs> so that, that's, that's my only answer. Yeah, cool. And even uh, Cliff, the guy, and the guys who program it at Fractal Audio, will say, you know, these are. If you want the real thing, use the real thing because this is so much more. And they're quite right; it is. It is so much more. Yeah, the, cool. The, the potential is vast for enjoyment, 
relaxation. I'll go and turn the thing on and just pick an amp that I've never tried before. So some crazy um, exotic thing that Cliff has modelled and, uh, you know, maybe one of his own Dumbles. He owns a couple apparently and just muck around with it for a while and see what I can do with it. So it's the gift that keeps on giving for me. Cool. One um, one video I loved um, on your, your site you had, I can't remember what the patch, I can't remember anything about it other than like you're working your, your guitar volume like like you would with any other amp mm. and um, and the touch and response to, to my ear, obviously playing it, you're going to feel it differently, but to my ear it sounds like, okay, I can hear you digging in, I can hear you backing off on the guitar. Yeah. And that stuff modelling hasn't always done very well, I guess. No, well, Cliff takes great pains to make sure that kind of dynamic is included in the algorithm, which wouldn't be easy, I don't think. And you're quite right. Uh, I am a big fan of the pinky on the, excuse me, on the volume knob. I've never used the volume pedal ever. Uh, and it does exactly what I could do when I was running, when I was running Marshalls and or Fender Backline or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it's a mix. It's a, it's a great mixture of, um, of old and new. Cool. With all of the with all of those cool dynamics that you've just you know a great example that you've just pointed out. Sure, cool. What about guitars? What are you what are you playing? Is that per gig basis or? I have I have uh, it is. I try to I, I try to think like that, but inevitably I always come back to a bloody Stratocaster. Always. <laughs> so I've I've probably got forty or fifty guitars, and it, you know that range from crappy down electros through to eight string extended Ibanez Prestige mm. and ESP things. Uh, Telecasters are fabulous. I've got a couple of Gibsons, but always it must be just I don't know why habit or something. But I always usually it ends up being the old uh, Fiesta Red 56 Strat mm -hmm. custom shop thing that I run around with. Great, just probably the simplest instrument in the entire menagerie. Menagerie, what's the word? Uh, and uh, it just feels it's just comfortable and does everything I need it to do yeah, but cool. what I do do habitually and frustratingly I think for even for myself is continuously change pickups I'm working with three or four different pickup manufacturers at the moment including Chris Kinman who's given me about 30 different sets <laughs> uh, so I'm always swapping them in and out and, and checking out that's kind of fun too cool so what, what pickups have you got in there at the moment at the moment I've got a set of Four Seasons uh, bluesy sort of Strat pickups, and Four Seasons are from. Gosh, I better get this right. The Netherlands, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Uh, and they're just El Nico four and five standard, moderate output Strat pickups, but they sound gorgeous. But uh, normally it would be Mick Reilly's pickups. I've got a lot of guitars with his stuff in it. Mm -hmm. And next week, it may be Mick Brealey's pickups again. Sure. But at the moment, uh, they're these Four Seasons pickups, which are great. And I've, I've got a couple of custom strats built for me by uh, a fellow down here called Rob Butenhaus, another Dutchman. Yeah. Uh, and it's a wood grain thing that you might have seen on a couple of the videos or even on stage. And it runs Chris Kinman's new pickups. Um, okay. Are they the noiseless? Zero hum, we call them, uh, because the noiseless tag was appropriated or licensed at least by Fender. Yeah. And uh, so Chris has, he calls them zero hum, but yes, the description would be 
There ain't no noise. Wow. Not even the Jazzmaster pickups, which are amazing. I've got a, I've, I've got a couple of, gosh, six Jazzmasters here. I reckon I've torn out all the pickups in in them and Chris Kinman's uh, pickups in that, which sound better and no noise. It's unusual for a Jazzmaster because they're usually humming bastards. Yeah, yeah, they have that funny. Um, I don't know how to describe the extra metal hanging out the sides. That yeah, well, they're big flat single coil pickups for really yeah so there's this magnetic field just going everywhere and they yeah, yeah. Uh, unless you shield it incredibly well um or use something like chris's pickups you know you've got to live with that noise which can be uh an additive to your music as well just look at sonic youth or you or um jay mascus or you know those sorts of people who will actually ride that noise but yeah yeah um, so I've kept one. I've kept one or two Japanese jazz masters with the original American pickups I put in them, um, and they've got the noise, and they're nice. But yeah, Chris's stuff's pretty good. Cool. I think with the Fender, do you know the story? I think he was working with Fender at one stage, or they were in discussion about using his designs. Yeah, I know that there was there was some sort of potential collaboration. Okay. Uh, that in the end, for one reason or another, didn't happen. And I don't know what those reasons are, and I've never probed Chris about it, who doesn't live in Australia anymore, by the way. I think he's in um, uh, the Philippines now. And, uh, yeah, I've never, um, I've only known him really professionally for maybe a year or so, um, although we've admired each other from afar, which is flattering. Um for me, at least, uh, uh, I knew there was yeah, there was some upset, and I, I I don't want to even speculate on what that might yeah, have been. Sure. So I don't know the the details or the facts, but um, it never eventuated. Suffice to say, and he's still out on his own and doing quite well. Yeah. Cool. Hey, can we Brett, can we talk about your YouTube channel now? Yep. I've got some numbers. I don't know if they're correct. You've you've been doing it for about eight years or so. Yep, started it as, as a sort of a backroom uh, bit of fun in 2008. Mm-hmm. And by 2010, I'd been headhunted by a pro guitar shop, and it was a business concern. It became a business concern inside two years. So it was a, it was a, ten, a, a tenacious, persistent effort to sort of make some sort of impact, be it good or bad, and in the end, it's worked out to be quite good. Yeah. I, when you say quite good, I've I've heard somewhere between twelve and sixteen million views. Is that right? Well, it's actually more than that. It's about twenty-two million. Oh, you joke! Yeah, that is crazy. That's, that's on my channel, and then there's a, you know on the Pro Guitar Shop channel. I I don't even know. It would be probably the same again for my videos because I know that they're up to about two hundred mil. Wow. So. On any given day, like right now, there'll be people around the world. Like there'll be thousands of people a day checking out your videos, checking out gear, gear stuff. 300,000 hits a month I get. Wow. That'll Which, do it. Give or take 5%. I just watched, I watched the trends of, um, but yeah, but it wasn't always like that, of course. When sure. I first, when I first heard, hit 500 views, I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And then it, you know, six months later, it would be, it was 50,000. I thought, wow, this is actually, I might start soliciting for, pedals from manufacturers but I didn't have to because they started coming to me mm-hmm. 
I've got a hundred pedals sitting outside there at the moment, and, and and maybe a dozen amps from various manufacturers, including Roland and Blackstar, you know, big ones. Yeah. And uh, any guitars coming in here? Yeah, there are a few guitars coming in, but just piles and piles of stuff. Earthquaker Devices sent me eight pedals yesterday, you know, and it takes a full day, unfortunately, to um, to make a video, set it up research the product, uh, film it, edit it, master it. I was going to say upload it, but that two-hour thing finished yesterday because now I've got the NDN. <laughs> Very good. And get it online. Thank so you, Malcolm. It's actually, but in terms of a working day, it's usually about six to eight hours for any given product. Okay. Wow, that's that's huge. And you do all that yourself in-house? Yeah. Well, I've got to because there's no one else around here to do it. The skill set uh, and I say this in all humility is very high. You've got to be uh, you've got to be right on top of Pro Tools. You've got to be right on top of Final Cut Pro. Know how to place microphones and cameras, and then have the um, you've got to be able to present it. You've got to be able to, to make those pedals sound great with a particular style approach, uh, and then you know be able to frame the picture. And um, are you with me? So yeah, it's yeah. actually you are a, in very much uh, a one-man show in for all of those skills that are required and it's expensive mm -hmm. because we're talking about you know canon cameras with two thousand dollar lenses uh three max with the grunty cpus in them i could afford to do the crunching the rendering mm -hmm. um yeah and then there's the amount of money and time invested in uh, when it, the first channel when the channel first started because i wasn't being given pedals or anything uh, yeah. and still nothing's for free because you work for it yeah. people don't understand it oh he gets all these pedals for free well i don't get them for free at all because every time it's every time something comes through the door it's work it's another day's work yeah uh so consequently i now charge for it accordingly which is why it's become a business and why i've got to sit here for the next six months and try and catch up with all the work <laughs> that's cool some people would would find that a fun a fun problem hey um anyone anyone with a smartphone can start a gear review channel or dare i say the podcast many do yes how come what do you think i think maybe you've answered this but why, why do you think yours has taken off um well i got in relatively early uh when there weren't too many people doing it the only ones that were established of any note that i knew about were gear man dude who i'm now friendly with okay and is, he, is he the guy that sounds like um, Jack Black? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's actually a um, a, a really friendly guy whose name yeah. I won't disclose. Okay. Uh, works in a guitar store down in Southern America, mm -hmm. and um, loves playing the Rolling Stones, but does sound a lot like Jack Black, <laughs> and has the same kind of wry humour. So he's uh, he's been pigeonholed, and I think he plays on that as you know. Uh, yeah. Right. So, so there was him, and there was Andy, and. Pro Guitar Shop had only just begun, really, and at that point in time as well. Uh, so they were the benchmarks for me, and um, there weren't there weren't much other competition. And I'd always try to approach it with a degree of humour, and objectively, in that I wanted to see on on my videos at least what I would want to see if I was another person watching them. Mm -hmm. So it's not about me, it's about the product. Uh, so shut up, Brett, and just get on with demonstrating the product, but try to give you an as accurate representation as possible 
So the guy in the Arizona desert who can't get to a music shop because the nearest one is 250 miles away can actually have faith in the pedal that he orders online because Kingman has made it sound like this. So that's what I know I'm going to get. Yeah, sure. That's what... Uh, that's that's what's driven the success of the channel is um, audio and uh, explanatory accuracy, I think, and and so that it, it can be relied on. Awesome. Yeah, it looks like fairly early on you must have made a conscious decision to... I mean, the quality was always good, but you, you started micing up your amps. The quality um, was not always... The quality was... The quality was originally, it was... Um, it was put the pedal here in front of the MacBook Pro, which is what I'm talking to you now, and just okay. using the mic and, and the camera on it because I yeah, had nothing yeah. else. Sure. And then I then I borrowed a little Sony video cam from somebody uh -huh. um, who never got it back for two years, and then I then I I got a decent microphone and uh, and I stopped using GarageBand and I stopped using iMovie and I started using Pro Tools and I started using Final Cut Pro and I got bloody serious about it and then mm -hmm. bought a Mac Pro and then bought a, a Canon you know, SLR camera that could shoot HD with a $2,000 lens. And I had to invest time and effort into it and and uh, and be tenacious about making it better every single time. And I still try to do that, although I know I do some pretty loose stuff. If I had a couple of whiskeys, I'll just turn the camera on and go for it, which is fun too. And funnily enough, you know, they're pretty popular, those videos. But uh, I, always try, I always try to keep improving in some way or other you know what the crazy thing is here's a mad story i am a bass player man but the most <laughs> the most popular videos on my channel by far are the bass really really wow. have a look at the stats you can bring it up if you want <laughs> we're talking you know four hundred thousand views for some of that tech 21 bass stuff it's just it's nutty so either there's no bass players out there doing great videos yeah. channels or they've just started i hope so or um I can't explain it. Yeah, just a little tidbit. <laughs> so there's an opportunity for someone out there. Oh, much, yeah. Because I'm not, I'm not much good at it. <laughs> well, I didn't think so. Anyway. So apart from a um, hundred odd pedals to review and and some uh, some more touring when when the weather warms up, uh, have you got anything else sort of planned for the rest of this year, or has that tied you down for now? I had a uh, a contract with. Um, MGM slash Waterfront for three solo albums. Okay, great. Based on the ambient sort of stuff that I do when I'm mucking around out there, which people seem to love for some reason. I'm very grateful. That's all they want. So I'm going to try to at least, and I'm three years behind okay. with the first one. Yeah. Um, so, but I've got all the Pro Tools sessions from all of the videos that I've done, and we're talking 1,500 videos. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of material to sift through. Uh, and a friend and I are going to go through it and hopefully get at least the first one out this year. So when you say going through videos, you mean you're going to... Go through the Pro Tools sessions um, to look for... All the videos I do are 99% uh, improvised compositions. Okay, yeah. To suit whatever I'm demonstrating, rather than occasionally I will learn, you know, a Zach Wilde solo or something like that. Pro Guitar Shop usually want me want you to play something uh, that the viewer can reference. Okay. 
Sure. So I do that. But really, I'm too lazy. I couldn't. I, I just can't do it. And I'm good at improvising, so I just make stuff up. So in the course of making all of this stuff up, there's usually some sort of melody involved um, because that's the kind of musical background I came from and I find it easy to do. So there's some pretty good stuff in, in there that is worthy of uh, some post-production and just, you know, throwing out as a two or three-minute piece, a bit like the Aphex Twin would have done, you know, mm-hmm. um, with his electronic stuff. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, right, cool. So it's a niche, it'll be a niche uh, audience at best, listening audience. It's not something I'd want to tour. Um, but the contracts, they're, they're waiting for the material, I think, still. And um, I'd like to do it just for fun. So cool. that's that's a side project, but the most important thing for me at the moment is to plough through all of this work that's been sitting there, some of it for longer than 18 months. Cool. Well, Brett, man, thank you so much. You've given us a lot of time, and you've obviously, as you said, you've got, you've got a billion pedals out the back. You need to start plugging in eventually. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been My great it's pleasure. Been awesome. Thank you for having me. Cool. And um, what's the best way to, for people to keep um, up to date with the stuff you're up to? Uh, well, my Facebook page is, is usually uh, my point of um, communication, first point of communication, followed by YouTube. And uh, you can subscribe to that channel quite easily. It's just one click. Yep. So if, if all they want to see or hear is uh, YouTube dem- demos, that's probably their best point of reference. If they want to see and hear or talk about other gear that may not be demoed, but we that, that I'm discussing with uh, my YouTube, my Facebook page rather, is um, a frequent point of communication for not just myself but all the people I know. Yeah. And uh, which is mainly industry people, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's that's, and I have a website which I've criminally disregarded for the last year or so just because i haven't had the bloody time to maintain it um but hello paul hannah in sydney who put it up for me very clever designer and uh i'd like to say that it would be a good point of, of um a good one-stop shop but at the moment i'm sorry that it's not so youtube or facebook cool all right awesome well i'll keep an eye out we'll keep an eye out for um for some more gear reviews and those three solo ambient albums looking forward to that yeah yeah, a bit of fun, and then I'll be back on the um, back on the stage with James and the rest of the crew in late October for. I think we're doing the Red Hot Summer tour, but don't make me stick to that. One of the one of the big outdoor runs, probably a couple of day on the greens, you know that sort of stuff. Yeah, right. right. All right, that was my conversation with Brett Kingman in uh, in May 2016, and indeed um, there were a, a bunch of those huge live shows as part of that Red Hot Summer Festival. Uh, I remember Brett Garsett, our friend who we interviewed from John Farnham's band, was on a bunch of those dates as well. And uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, lots of good gigging going on, and lots more to come. All right, we're about to move over to my interview with Bob Spencer. We're going to start the interview with Bob uh, playing uh, a track off his much-anticipated solo album. But before we do that, here's a word from my friends Mick and Jeff from the Amps and Axes podcast. 
Hey, podcast world. I'm Jeff Bober. And I'm Mick Marcelino of Amps and Axis. That's right. And we've got a cool podcast that talks with guitarists, manufacturers, engineers, and techs. Yeah. So check us out every Saturday on iTunes and Google Play. That's right. And as we're always saying, onward. Great to have you. Bob, when did you first start playing guitar? I uh, started when I was around nine, and uh, my first lessons were at school. Uh, a really delightful brother at school. They were not all delightful, as you probably know, having heard about various ugly Morris Brothers things. But the guitar teacher that I had at school was a really good bloke um, who was smart enough to leave the brotherhood and get married. Um, <laughs> And uh, I, uh, I I began with him when I was around nine. The guitar was not my first instrument of choice. It was saxophone. And my dad, who's bigger than I am, he's kind of a big bloke, and I was a, a little bloke, um, he said that I was too small, and that was really it. He told me to choose something else. So for reasons that I can no longer remember, I chose guitar. And very quickly, I became pretty good. And within a few months of of learning from Brother Edward at school, I knew what he knew. And I had to go outside and find a, a private guitar teacher. And, and I kept up my lessons until I was, I think, 16. Okay, great. So I, I, I learned for, um, I guess, what's that, seven years. And... and um, being born in 1957 and learning when I did, it meant that I went through some of those exams that we used to have in the old days. Okay. Um, and I found those certificates the other day, which is cute. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so, <clears throat> so I learned for a long while that the lessons were short. Everything was half an hour in those days. Um, and you didn't get to cover the things that, I now believe are vitally important. We did things like scales and technique, and that's all great, but we did nothing with regards to playing guitar in a band mm -hmm. or how to play a groove or how to get a, a, an appropriate sound or what equipment might work or might not. We did none of that. I mean, zero, not a damn thing. And now, of course, being the age that I am and having played as long as I have, I realise that those things are of vital importance. Uh, it's it's wonderful to know modes, but if you don't know how to put that into a, a solo or you don't know how to pull a guitar sound, then it's pretty useless, really. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it becomes your knowledge becomes useless if you can't put it into practice. Um, my thing is, a lot of my 
point of view is is based on um, the goal of having my students play in a band. Mm-hmm. So and and you know the the appropriate high high heels and latex to wear is one aspect, but um, but the other things are uh, you know, pulling a sound, what sort of pedals you might want to use, yeah. and accepting that there's no and this brings this opens up another doorway. There is no best. There's just stuff that you think works, mm-hmm. and maybe more importantly, fun. Uh, I'm only interested in in equipment that allows me to have fun. Um, I'm not really interested in whether it sounds good or bad or anything really. I, but if I'm having fun playing through something, I'll find a way to work to make it work. Yeah, cool. If you weren't learning about being in a band, did you mm. start doing garage bands or something around then? So when you're around 16 or Oh, yeah, so? it was earlier than that. Um, I joined my first garage band when I was maybe 12 or 13. Yeah, and cool. and the, the blokes in the band were... 18, 19 years old, mm-hmm. uh, so it didn't last very long. They were talking about girls and cars and all sorts of things, yeah. and I had no idea what they were on about, so it didn't uh, really last that long. I, on a playing level, I could keep up with them. Yeah. What, what were you playing? What kind of, what kind of tunes? Um, I recall doing things like Black Sabbath, yeah. stuff like that, and, and sort of writing our own material um, it was it was very English based as has most of my listening was English based rock um, <clears throat> and you know rehearsing in the lounge room that sort of thing mm-hmm. cool. didn't last very long and then I think I must have been around 14 when I joined a Sydney band by the name of Finch and they were 18 19 20 years old okay uh, so emotionally, I was, you know, behind them. But again, playing-wise, I was on par with them. So the band kind of worked, and I, I stayed with them for, for, geez, what was it, four or five years? Okay. And so, you, you ended uh, up doing albums and and tours with those guys? Oh yeah, we uh, did uh, my first album with them, uh, which was a surfing album, um, a, f- a very famous surfer by the name of peter druin if you're a, if you're a surfer you know that name mm-hmm. um everybody else doesn't uh, we did an album for for a film about him and uh, that was my first record proper recording experience wow. which was great i learned i learned an enormous amount and i asked a zillion questions which is how i learn yeah um and then that had a couple of original tunes on it then uh, later on, we did uh, um, another album, a studio album of uh, maybe it was nine or ten original tunes. Mm-hmm. And we did a couple of singles and we did a lot of touring. And I was still at school. I, I completed my 12 years at school. So in the last couple of years at school, I was out Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sundays gigging. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, and then on the road during my school holidays. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. And your parents obviously were on board. Yeah, my parents were cool with all of that. They um they were cool. They they weren't cool in a lot of other ways, but they were cool with regards to me going out and playing and 
and they trusted me. And I, you know, I didn't develop a drug ha- habit or anything like that. And I was too sensible for that. Um, so they trusted me, and I was hanging out with people a lot older. Um, but there didn't seem to be any problems. Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. I, I remember something funny, where when I was about 16 or so. One of the parents at school chastised my parents for allowing me to be in a rock and roll band because they claimed that all people in all musicians were drug addicts, mm-hmm. and my parents stuck up for me. Um, they were kind of like that; they would stick up for me yeah, as well. Cool, that's great. Uh, yeah, it was kind of weird, but, but yeah. good. Yeah. Awesome. What was your rig like then? Oh, I had a late fifties uh, Telecaster. Wow. Uh, with uh, a homemade fast box. I wish I still had the fast box, of course, as we all do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I played into a Leonard GB60 head with a Leonard 212 box. Wow, that's awesome. <clears throat> and it was it was great. I wouldn't mind having that rig back. Uh, if anyone has it, I would like it back. Thank you very much. <laughs> I will pay for it. I would like it back. Cool. Um, so that was my first real rig. And... Uh, then I eventually went on to having two Wasp 100-watt heads and two Wasp quad boxes, uh, as you did uh, back then. Great. Uh, it's a couple of good uh, Aussie, Aussie brands there, Leonard and Wasp. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah, and uh, those sounds still inform me. And a lot of the bands that I saw were using Australian equipment. Mm-hmm. So I still remember the sound of... Um, Strauss, the ones that didn't explode, uh, <laughs> balls of fire. Uh, I remember the sounds of Strauss through JBLs. If you Strauss through JBL, I can hear that sound. Wow. Um, I can still hear uh, wasps. They they were they were the the amps that were very common. Wasp, Leonard, um, things like Golden Tone, Moody. Oh yeah, yeah. That yep. sort of thing. Okay. So those sounds are. They were, they became familiar to me, and an interesting thing is even to this day they still sort of sound familiar mm-hmm. because cool. that's what I grew up on. I did. I'm, I'm not from England, I'm, even though I was listening to uh, English amps. Yeah. What was around me at gigs were mostly um, uh, Australian amps and Fenders, things like Fender sure. Twins. Um, People didn't use little fenders that I remember. It, if you had a fender, it was a fender twin. Right, yeah. Um, and uh, there were a few marshals around, of course, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, cool. So when did you wind up with Finch? Uh, when I joined the Skyhooks. Um, okay, so it was a direct kind of shift over for you. Yeah. Finch were going around in circles. We were a, we were a good band. Now, what I mean by that is that we played well and our singer sang very well. He's a very good singer. But we didn't have songs. Mm-hmm. Um, we we rather egotistically thought that we could get by by being a good band. And I remember we were very concerned about how well we played. Yeah. But we kind of missed the big picture, which is... If you don't have songs, it really doesn't matter how well you play. Sure. So the band began began going. <coughs> excuse me. The band began going round in circles. 
and doing the same gigs and not really in, uh, increasing our audience and feeling a bit lost and and having internal conflicts and that was all brought to a head by us living in the same house in Melbourne. Okay. We moved to Melbourne. And I remember that there were two or three wives as well um, and maybe one or two kids and all in the same house. And that is just an absolute recipe for disaster. Yeah. Um, so I was very unhappy. It, it was that the situation... Uh, where, uh, you know, you have your own cheese in the fridge and you don't want anybody else touching it, yeah, you know, that sure. sort of thing. It was, yep. it was terrible. And a, I had already become friends with Skyhooks hmm. uh, because Finch supported them. Oh, okay. And yep. I, I got along really well. I became a friend of Skyhooks. The other guys in, in the band didn't, but, but I did. And um, I kept in contact with Greg McCainch in particular, and one day, totally out of the blue, um, I used to see Greg socially. You know, we'd see each other and write each other letters and postcards in mm -hmm. those days yeah. and keep in contact. And out of the blue, he called me and um, um, he left a message for me and I called him back and he said, can I see you when you get to Melbourne or something like that? I was, a, I don't know where we were, Ballarat or Morwell or something out in the Victorian country. And um, I said, sure. So I called him when I got back to Melbourne and he said, well, Red's out. Would you like to join the band? And it, it was totally from left field, totally unexpected. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and I thought, well, this is actually the opportunity I have to leave Finch, regardless of what I do, sure. because Finch were going around in circles, and whether I join the hooks or not, I really need to leave yeah. this other band. And uh, it turns out that I that I did join Skyhooks. Yeah, wow, brilliant! And so it was great. It was the the biggest learning curve I've ever experienced in music. Yeah, yeah. What what kind of things oh, yeah. would you learn? Uh, arrangements, attention to detail in terms of arrangements, how songs, watching. Greg uh, shape the songs. Yeah, because he was the. Greg, okay. Sorry, was Greg? Greg was the main songwriter in Skyhooks. It's pretty much the only songwriter. Okay. Red wrote a couple of things, but right. Uh, but Red, but Greg wrote out of I don't know how many albums the band had. Five albums. He he probably wrote all but you know four songs. Mm. Um, <clears throat> wow. So he was. Yeah, and it's it's his band. It's always been his band, and I'm I'm happy to say it's Greg's band. That's not a problem. It's yeah. not an issue. But I learned a lot just watching the way he um, put songs together and listening to the demos, and then learning the parts. and And the band were totally on top of the business end, which I'd never seen before. Okay, they were absolutely on top of it. Everybody worked for them. Mushroom Records worked for them. Michael Gadinsky worked for them. The road crew, you know, everybody. The, it was very clear who was at the top of the tree, and that was the band. Mm -hmm. And the band steered everything. And um, um, it was a, a, the most amazing experience to have, a, a, particularly as a, a young lad. I was 19 when I joined the band. Okay, yeah. Um, 
And they were also the most professional band I'd ever seen. The first time I saw Skyhooks, and I've told this story before, um, I'd heard them on the radio and I thought the songs were really well done, mm. really well done, very clever, very interesting, very clever. And I went with Finch to see them and Skyhooks played their first gig under the pylons of the Harbour Bridge in Sydney. must have been 74. Okay, wow-ish. And we all went, and I was just hanging to hate them because, <laughs> because I was convinced that they were fags from Melbourne and um, in the nicest possible way back then. You know, we're thinking yeah, 70s. Sure, okay? sure. It's not an anti-gay thing. And uh, I was really kind of wanting to dislike them because they were fantastic, but they were from Melbourne, and I thought, well, this, this, is, this is not going to float. And they totally blew my mind they were they were on another level now i had seen bands like sherbet i'd seen sherbet close up a number of times because finch had supported them many times so they were friends of mine and i used to see them at nightclubs and i'd seen the gigs and uh-huh. so i'd seen sherbet and thorpe and the lardy dars and i'd seen all the what were what were the top bands and skyhooks made everybody sound like they were still at mum and dad's garage uh when i that gig that i saw in in sydney uh, was frightening it was really it was really kind of scary wow. oh that's what you have to do if you really want to be good that's what you have to do everything was together everything was together yeah i've never seen anything like it so um uh, i was converted of course but i didn't meet them until I don't know, a year later. Okay. I don't really remember. Maybe a couple of years later, whatever it was. Sure. And um, um, which albums were you involved with? Uh, the first album, I, I only did two or three. Uh, did a live album called Live Be In It, mm-hmm. which is a good live album, and a studio album which had women in uniform on it. That was called Guilty Until Proven Insane, which has got some good work some work that i'm very very happy with on that album i was only 19 when i recorded it but good guitar sounds um well recorded well produced was replaced by a lovely man by the name of Tony Williams, but basically the band fell apart. Okay. We did another album, which I think is awful, okay. uh, which we all think is awful, sounds awful, terrible, and then we broke up. And then I supported myself. Oh, I, I played with various people. I played with John English and Russell Morris and John Swan and whatever. Okay. Um, but I supported myself by... Being an audio engineer, I, I, I was a, I was a working recording engineer for a few years. Oh, okay, so this is in Melbourne, so you stayed down there. Uh, this is back in Sydney. Oh, I okay. moved to Sydney. Yep. Yeah, and uh, uh, I've always loved recording. I'm quite addicted to recording. Okay, and ever since I was very young, um, I've wanted to know about everything that's going on, especially in the studio. 
So I got to do that full time for a few years. Great. And where were you working doing that stuff? A couple of studios in Sydney. Yeah. Real to real studios. Yeah. That, that don't exist anymore. Okay, sure. Uh, but working with tape and big desks and all that was great. great. Awesome. It was a really good learning experience. And then um, um, I joined the Angels again, same sort of thing. There was no plan. I Rick Brewster, in particular, had been a friend of mine for a very long while okay. because I met the Angels before they were the Angels when they moved to Sydney in 72 or 3 or oh, something. because okay. they were up from Adelaide, weren't they? Adelaide. Yeah. So I met them back then and uh, we did gigs with them in, in Finch. And Rick was a mate and we used to see each other and... I had another band going for a little while and we did some angel supports. It's all very friendly. And in those days, we used to do a little bit of hanging out together and we'd see each other at gigs afterwards, um, nightclubs and whatever. So one day I was on the phone with Rick and um, I called him about the studio that I was working in. And I, I called him to let him know that if he wanted to do some demos, then let me know and I could get him a good rate to do demos in a studio. And he said, oh, cool. And, and I then I asked him, oh, you know, what you doing? How's it going? And he said, oh, John just left the band. And I said, oh, well, if you want a guitar player, let me know. So the next thing I was in the band. Okay. It was, you know, it was just one of those things. You're, you're on the phone and someone says blah and you go, oh, blah. And he says, oh, blah, blah, blah. Oh. Blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you're, you're doing something. Together. Wow, that's cool. It all... Yeah, yeah, it is. Cool. I don't mean to diminish it at all. It it, it sure. was cool, but it's just that's what happens when you have friends in the who are doing. I'm sure it happens with you know carpenters and 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 alpha mechanics and all sorts of people. Sure, it, yeah. I'm sure that stuff happens in IT and whatever. Yeah, and that's just what happened with us. I don't know how it happens now. Um, there don't seem to be those after-hours clubs that bands go to mm. like we used to. Plus, the music scene is is quite um, uh, small compared with what it was when I was a kid. And there sure. were lots of bands, and we used to do socialising. Yeah. So, so you'd find out what was going on. Yeah, right. So when was this? This is around 84? Oh, um, no, I think I joined the Angels in 80... Um, oh, God. Was it 85 or 86? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Angels fans know more about this stuff than I do. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I just don't... I don't think in those terms. Yeah. You know, um, sometimes I remember the years, but, but I don't really focus on them. Yeah. So I think I joined in 85. Okay. 85 sounds about right. Okay. So yeah. bo both these bands, you replaced Red Simons in Skyhooks and then John Brewster. Yep. Both yep. those guys are predominantly rhythm players. I mean, they, they do some parts, yep. but predominantly rhythm guys. You come in with a whole different slant. Was there ever, I don't know, was mm. there much adjustment in, in either of those bands? You come in as a lead yeah. player when there's an established kind of lead player there already? Well, the Red used to play a lot of lead lines. Okay. The, an, an interesting thing about Skyhooks is that their the rhythm lead thing is, if you forget about the solos, mm. what's going on the rest of the time is quite mixed. It's quite intricate, yeah. 
very intricate, extremely yeah. intricate. So the hard work for me in Skyhooks was learning to play those parts in a really tidy, nimble fashion. Yeah, um, I've always been a nimble player, not a fast player, but I have reasonable accuracy. Learning to play those parts so that they were always absolutely repeatable and in sync with Greg. A lot of the guitar parts are doubled with the bass. Oh, okay, yeah. So learning to play those guitar parts synced with Greg and Bob Starkey was a, a chore. It mm -hmm. was hard. My phrasing was different from their phrasing. I hear triplets different to this day. Okay. I hear them slightly differently from how they hear triplets. Yeah. Um, and there were there were little adjustments like that, and 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 playing songs that Greg wrote, unlike what I was doing previously, playing songs that I wrote because I wrote most of the music for Finch. Mm -hmm. So I I wrote and played material which is pretty easy, or I played Free, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, which is all pretty easy, and and then. You compare that with Skyhooks, where I had to learn parts mm. that were written by Greg, which were nothing like Deep Purple or Black Sabbath or Grand Funk Railroad or any of that stuff. They were very, very particular parts. So that was the chore for me. And I don't mean chore in a bad way. Sure. That sure. was my task. Felt the work of it, yeah. Task is a better word. My task was to learn to play those parts as Greg wrote them. So when you came into the Angels, was the original yeah. brief we we just filling John's parts to start with? Yeah, um, it was easy. I, I was just playing rhythm parts. I don't play like John. I come from John's older than I am, and he comes from a different background mm -hmm. um, from me. Uh, John has um, John and Doc um, are were ten years older than I am, so. John has more of a, and I and I don't mean this in a bad way at all, but he he has a bit of the kind of fifties thing, and also some of the sixties folk thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he he really likes uh, Bob Dylan. Yeah, sure. So I didn't come from anything like that. I came from rhythm players who slashed their guitars. My background in rhythm playing is. Paul Kossoff, Pete Townsend. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, those two guys, I guess. So the di there was a difference. Um, no, I don't think a bad difference, but it was a little bit different. And I, the guitar parts that John played were pretty much the same parts that Rick played. Okay, yeah. A lot of the Angels is what a friend of mine calls the monolithic guitar sound. <laughs> That's like um, perfect. That's such a great description. It's, it's really good. <laughs> um, so I learned those guitar parts and played them to the best of my ability. They don't they don't sound like John, but John doesn't sound like me. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, so I played the rhythm parts, and I didn't play any lead stuff at all. And then it just became pretty obvious that, well, Bob can play lead. It's It's another thing that we can sell. So, I and I was obviously writing for the band. Yeah, I was going to um, ask what what was the um what was the process for writing? Because was it with Rick? Was he the other sort of main writer? Yeah, 
Well, I've, I've never stopped writing. Yeah. So uh, I wrote most of the music for the band I was in earlier, Finch, yeah. and I'd never stopped. So I'd built up a whole stack of music while I was in Skyhooks. Mm-hmm. Then I had a couple of original bands that went nowhere after Skyhooks, lots and lots of original songs. So I joined the Angels with a, a I already had a back catalogue of lots of different bits and pieces. Okay, and yeah. I just played them to Rick and he'd go, I like that. So that would turn into a song. Yeah, cool. I'd do a demo at home on my four track or what later became an eight track. Mm-hmm. And I'd play them to the band. And if the band liked them, we'd record them. And it just so happened that pretty much everything that I, I'm, I think that everything I gave to the band, the band recorded. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, so, again, no grand plan. It's just what I do. I write all the time. In fact, the problem for me is that I write too much and it interferes with my life. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm forever putting down ideas. Yeah. Um, so writing for the band came very naturally. And what I did was I was kind of selective about what I gave the band. I, I, I tried not to give the band stuff those people um, uh, couldn't really get their teeth stuck into. Yeah. There was no point giving Doc a vocal part that was, for example, out of his range mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Um, so I, the material that I presented to the band, the band was stuff that I thought the band would be able to deliver. Yeah, cool. And it, and it turned out that it kind of worked. So... First album I did with the band, there were a couple of my things on it, and then by the time of Beyond Salvation, there, well, you know, a lot of that music is mine. Not, I, I don't want to take credit for lyrics and melody, mm-hmm. some melodies maybe, but, but, but not lyrics. But a lot of the music is mine. Wow! Yeah. and that and, was the biggest album from the Angels. It was, and obviously I, I wrote with Rick, and Rick's no slouch when it comes to writing riffs. Mm-hmm. So provided a lot of stuff on that album yeah cool and he uh most of the lyrics on that album are rick okay yep cool that doesn't mean he didn't write music he did yeah uh, so I, I, it's it's hard to get this stuff across yeah sure uh, really. um but my involvement was music and rick's involvement was music and lyrics and there were other lyrics written by a little bit written by Brent Eccles and literally a, a few lines written by doc i think okay yep doc really wasn't writing okay at, at all from the time i joined the band doc wasn't involved in the writing okay um, i don't know what happened i've only heard stories but i don't literally know what happened when doc was writing before i was in the band because i wasn't there sure sure yeah and so i can't i can't inform but uh, while I was in the band, uh, no, he, he wrote, like, almost nothing. Mm. Um, I, I always thought you and Rick were a good team. Um, Great team. I love Rick. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's one of the, one of the, the um, I don't know, just such a iconic, melodic kind of soloist. Oh, and, yeah, um, look, I, I use his solos to teach my students. Okay, yeah. Um, they're, they're, they tick so many boxes. Um and what's great about his solos is that they are the antithesis of guitar solos. They are compositions. Yeah. 
So whereas most guitar players would think about what licks can I throw out, yeah, yeah, Rick doesn't think like that at all. He he thinks what melody do I want, and then he happens to play it on guitar. Yeah, cool. which is another uh, another um, task I give my students, by the way, mm -hmm. to write solos in their heads, yeah, and then play them, cool. but not the other way around. It's just a task. It's a device. So Rick's fantastic at that. Yeah, great. I don't. The the point is for for me though, Rick's so melodic, but so are you. Like, um, in a different way. Yeah, I guess. I, I'm thinking like solos, like um, are the dogs. Yeah. The solo in that super melodic. You could sing it. Your your grandmother could sing it, and it's still rocking and aggressive, but it's quite tuneful. to do solos that people can sort of see. Yeah. So when, when, and I did that, there's this, the, 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 that single thing I have who called, who are these people? Yeah, if you've yeah. heard the solo yeah, in that. I have. Right. It's the same sort of thing. It's kind of kooky and wacky, but yeah. there's a story going on. You can kind of see it. So what, what I go for is, that's how I that's how I approach a solo. I want to be able to kind of see the image of the solo. Okay. Yep. And so, dogs are talking for me is that sort of solo. I can I can. I'm I'm sorry to sound like a, a bloody hippie, but <laughs> I, I sort of see the structure of the solo. Okay. Yep. And and I hope that people can remember how the solo sounds. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's. That's one thing that I aim for because I don't think there's much point in playing a solo that everybody forgets. You think, well, why have a solo in the first place? For sure. Is for it just, sure. Am I just showing off? Mm -hmm. You know. So Rick. Anyway, back to Rick. Rick's fantastic at doing that at, at writing melodic solos, um, and uh, I loved that about working with him, and I I still love that about hearing him. I. I played with them um, a few weeks ago in Sydney. Okay. I just just did a few songs, and uh, and those solos, they're magic. Yeah, and you, the great thing about what he plays is, is you you pretty much can't imagine those songs without those solos. Yeah, definitely, definitely. They would be severely lacking something. Mm. So, that I think. That's a wonderful thing. That's a really wonderful thing. Yeah, cool. And I'd argue the same for yours, absolutely. The, um, oh, thank, you. thank you. That track you mentioned. Um, who Are These People? Who Are These People? Yeah, what a great tune. I love that solo. It was like classic Spencer. <laughs> thank you. Super melodic um, and ripping.
So that's from your solo album that you're putting together at the moment? That's right. So I, I, I embarked on this scary crowdfunding journey. Yeah. Um, and that went pretty well. Um, now I have to deliver the album, of course. So I'm spending the next three months at home mm-hmm. uh, recording it. Yeah. Um, Who Are These People is, I guess that would be the lightest track of the 12. Okay. Um, a few of the other things are just big, slow monster grooves. Cool. Um, uh, yeah, but at least another few of them. And and there will be one instrumental song. There's a song called Marubra, mm-hmm. um, which is, I guess, a surf song. Yeah, cool. Um, but the rest will be with – I'm singing on them as well. Yeah, great. Well, you've always is, sung BVs and things. Yeah, I've sung BVs and and now I've, it's it's kind of path of least resistance, Matt. It's um, um, I I could work with a singer, and let's face it, most of the planet sing better than I do. Um, but it's it's really about when I can get together with somebody and work, and how much time we've got, and whether we can coordinate, and and how it's going to go, and and all that sort of stuff. And it's just easier. I'm not saying it's better, but it's just easier for me to continue doing it by myself. Yeah, sure. Well, so yeah. That's what I'll do. I mean, who are those people? You deliver it perfectly. It's that whole sardonic kind of take on the net. And Oh, oh thank you. Yeah. I wanted to be really kind of <laughs> ordinary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I didn't, you know, I didn't want it to. I didn't want to try and sound like a real singer because I wanted the song to be delivered in a way that anyone could just, you know, almost talk along with it. Yeah, sure, cool. So, yeah, but it turned it turned out pretty well. Yeah, yeah. great. So, so that track is pretty much done, I guess. Oh, uh, that track's done. I'll probably I'll tweak the mix probably for the for the album. Yeah. Um, but I'm not re-recording anything. I'm, yeah. I'm over. And I'm, I don't want to listen to it again <laughs> at all for a long, long while. Uh, so cool. that's done. And and today I've been working on a song called When the Devil Gets to Heaven, mm-hmm. which is a, a that sort of big groove. Yeah, cool. Um, and uh, it's got a drop D in it. Oh, yeah. But but it's not chugga-chugga. It doesn't. Um, and... Yeah, I'm just going to continue working here at home. I have a, um, a very small room and a, and a small setup, but uh, I use an uh, amp made by Ivan Richards. Oh, yeah. Yep. You know Ivan, who lives in Gosford? Yeah, I know of his amps, definitely, yeah. Right, so I've got an Ivan Richards amp, uh, a few pedals, and I've built myself an isolation box. Actually, you can see it. Can you see this big coloured thing? <laughs> Right? It says Bob Star, my little girl. That is Rock. great. Okay. <laughs> I'll have to get a picture for the podcast, guys. <laughs> you see inside it? That is awesome. I don't know if you can see. Yeah, that's great. So a few mics in there and a, and yeah. a, a 12-inch speaker box. Yeah, cool. Uh, which I can pull out if I'm ever doing small gigs. Yeah, nice. And uh, that's... The, the sound that you hear on Who Are These People is is just uh, one Ivan Richards amp mm-hmm. going into one speaker yeah. with, I don't think I used any pedals. Okay. 
I think no. I think the solo has um, an Ivan Richards blues drive on it. Oh, okay, yep. Uh, to make it middly, really middly. Yeah, yeah. It's I like solos to 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 be really focused in the mid range, really mm-hmm. focused in the mid range. Um, but other than that, it's all pretty ordinary, you know. Guitar amplifiers. It's 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 not rocket science. Yeah. What's the red guitar you're using in the clip? The red guitar is made by um, a lovely chap from the Victorian country by the name of Jeremy Johnson. Cool. And it's, it's. I mean, it looks, what attracted me to, to it in the first place was because it kind of looks like an old guy tone. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Jeremy and I tweaked the, um, tweaked the shape a little bit. But in terms of build, it's, Pretty normal stuff. It's a mahogany body, mm-hmm. a mahogany neck, ebony fretboard, and pickups by um, the master pickup builder, Mick Briley. Okay, cool. And so I have Mick Briley's in one, two, three, four. Mick Briley's in six guitars. Wow, there you go. The um. So I- I love his work. They look really cool. They've got the foil kind of cover. That one, on that one. yeah, those. See, they, yeah, they're like a filler shave um, uh, <laughs> a razor. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, it's a, a low output pickups. Okay. Um, and those ones are a little bit bright, mm-hmm. a little bit bright and and low. I, I really like low output pickups. I'm not big on high output pickups. I figure if you want more dirt, just turn your amp up or. Yeah use a fuzz box or something. Um, so all the pickups I've got are, are reasonably low output. Okay, And cool. I've stopped taking notice of what magnets are in them. Yeah. I, I don't want to know anymore. <laughs> I went through years of wanting to know everything. Yeah. And and now I just don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I call Mick and I vaguely explain if I can what I'm after and, and he... He makes something and they appear in the post and only once have I said I don't like this mm-hmm. um, and he's made me new ones. Yeah. But every other time what has turned up goes into the guitars. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Hey, I interrupted you. Sorry, you were talking about pulling guitar sounds before I asked you oh, about your, your guitar. I, I find it pretty easy. Yeah. Um, and look, I don't know why I find it easy that's something I haven't really thought about um, but I find that getting a guitar sound is not is not all that hard um, maybe it's because when I'm recording I'm I'm thinking I'm not thinking about getting a great guitar sound I'm thinking of getting a sound that I think will suit the song mm-hmm. and that will suit the other instruments in the song so everything will happily lift together yeah right um but i think it's pretty simple you get an amp that you like and if you're recording there's no reason to have a loud amplifier if you if you happen to like a loud amplifier that's great but there's no reason to have a loud amplifier purely because it's loud so uh, an amplifier that you you think the tone is pretty good rather than the volume is really loud um, um, that a, a rig that is responsive to your way of playing. Um, don't try and get a sound that 
where you're trying to just mirror image or copy somebody else's sound because you're not them, you don't play like them. Um, and I, I think keeping those things in mind, it's not all that hard to get a guitar sound. I, I am careful. I don't want you to take that like I'm not careful. I am careful. Um, recording on slightly on the cleaner side of dirty helps mm-hmm. uh, once it's in the mix. Yeah. If if things are too dirty, you lose the front yeah, of the sure. note, and um, and the front of the note is the bit that I'm really concerned about. I'm not really concerned about sustain. I I don't really care if guitars sustain or not. I'm I'm well. If they don't sustain at all, they sound like a banjo. Okay, mm-hmm. a banjo is all front and no sustain. Yeah, right. Cool. So, That's good um, way to look at it. yeah. So if the, if you get to all front and no sustain, it sounds like a banjo. So that's probably not something you want to do but uh the the beginning of the note really concerns me and a little bit of sustain but i'm I'm not one of those um people who who want a guitar to sustain forever that interferes with my rhythm playing okay yep. if a guitar sustains a lot i, I can't play rhythm mm-hmm. it's just it goes against my rhythm style so I set up everything for uh, a rhythm sound. I don't really set up for solo sounds. I oh, set okay. up for rhythm sounds and, uh, and you know, hit a stomp box or turn your guitar up for the solo. Yeah, right. That's interesting. So a lot of guys would, be, would do it the total opposite way, you know, set up for the solo and then... Oh, God, no. Yeah. I, I reckon, well, why? Uh, it, at a gig, I don't know what percentage of the time you're playing rhythm, but I, I'm guessing... 95% of the time, yeah, sure. yeah. 90% of the time. So um, if I have to do a sound check quickly, uh, like at a, at a gig, um, let's say it's one of those things where you just drive to the gig and get up on stage and play and with an unknown amp, all I do is hit a couple of A chords. If I can get an A chord to sound pretty good yeah. and I carry with me one stomp box like a, a, a Richard's Blues Drive, mm-hmm then I'm done. If I can get my A chord to sound cool, then I just put the stomp box on the fly. I don't even need to check it. I know it's all going to work. Yeah. Awesome. So I, I set up from a rhythm point of view, not, I don't set up anything from a solo point of view. That's, I reckon that's the easy bit. I know guitar players stress about solo sounds. I don't, I just don't think that's the hard bit. I, I my focus is always getting a rhythm sound. Yeah, and cool. for me, the solo sound follows. So, hmm, that's just the way, you know, it's just, as you know, we've, you've, you've interviewed a million guys. Everybody's got a different point of view. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Hey, um, I've got a couple of questions from the Facebook. Um, I, I told a few people I was speaking to you and a couple of people okay. had some questions. Um Zog's guitar strings. Chris Churchwood, my mate, asked, are you still using Zog's guitar strings? No, I'm not, but I'm still using the... Okay. No, the the short answer is no, I'm not. Mm -hmm. However, we we need to go back in time to 1977 when I at first dawned on me that the gauges that we were being sold were wrong. Okay. So since 1977, and I remember the gig... Uh, it was in. It was at actually at the Canberra uh, University. Yeah. 
with skyhooks, I re- recall going, this is wrong, and I went out and bought different gauge strings. So from 1977, I've used my own custom gauge strings. Okay. So what were they? What, were, what was the gauge you had a problem with? Um, uh, the, I had a problem with everything I bought, whether it was 9 to 42 or 10 to 46 or okay. 10 to 52. They all felt kind of wrong to me. Okay. Now I know that the reason they felt wrong is because the tensions are all over the place. Mm-hmm. Okay. So from 1977, I started to put together my own string sets, normally with a 10 on top. Yeah. So they were around 10 to around 60. So wow. I used that for a number of years. And then um, and then I eventually got to 12 to 66. Um, again, my own custom gauge based on how they feel. Yeah. And then I, years ago, I, I got a, so there is a story. I got a wrist, <laughs> I had a wrist problem. Okay. And I freaked out. So I went to light strings. Yeah. And then, um, so I started putting together my own light gauges. And they were around nine, this is very light, yeah. around nine, ending on around 50. Okay. And it just so happens that somewhere along the line I was introduced to Zog strings. I can't remember how. I was probably Googling. And um, so I bought some Zog strings. And the thing about them is the graduated tension. Now, the only reason I'm not using them anymore is because I like the sound of GHS strings. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm currently using a, a, uh, what I, a, a gauge I put together of GHS, which goes for any of the geeks. I'm assuming you have geeks. <laughs> yeah. uh, my gauge is 9, 12, 16, 24, 50. Wow. That's a big jump on the end. Well, it doesn't feel like that. Yeah, wow. And cool. That's the whole thing. It, so course. it allows me to still play the rhythm I play. Yep. And play fiddly bits. Yeah, cool. So the only reason I went off the Zogs is because I felt they didn't sound quite as snappy as the GHS. The GHS, to my ears, sound a bit snappier. I'm just about to try the new Daddario NY strings or N something strings. Yeah, right. Um, They're setting me my custom gauge. Oh, cool. So in singles. Nice. Yeah. So, and, and I, I advise everybody to, to mess around with, with gauges to find what feels right for you. Yeah. You know, just because, I don't know, Rory Gallagher used it or Jimi Hendrix or Slash, that's, well, that's lovely. But if it doesn't feel right for you, then mm. why are you doing it? Yeah, yeah. It's the same when it comes to equipment. There's no point in saying my favourite guitar player is... I don't know, mention somebody, therefore I'm going to use his rig. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me anyway. So I'd suggest that people, players, find what works for them. It's like a car, you know, car that you enjoy driving, I might not enjoy driving. So that's the long, I'm sorry, that's the long answer about the Zogs. I love love the tension, but I, I... um, but I'm I'm now enjoying the GHS um, snappiness a little bit more. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Hey, another question was: um, Do you prefer live tracking or overdubs? Or I guess with your um, home studio, yeah. 
I love it all. Yeah. I love it all. Yeah, I just, I, I love the whole process, man. I, I love, I love being with other people and tracking together. I love, I love being by myself and uh-huh. and honing my parts. That I, I don't like any one part of it anymore. That what I miss, I can say what I miss is I miss the friction in a band. Uh-huh. Uh, I I think friction is a good thing, and um, working by myself means that um i don't have anyone to argue with Mm -hmm. and that that can be a bit of a drag yeah you know you think you have all this freedom but in fact that can be a bit restricting Uh i think friction is a good thing so i miss having a little bit of friction with people i trust and like by the way not idiots yeah i miss friction with idiots yeah yeah so Uh, like a creative (laughs) (laughs) a creative kind of friction yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool. Awesome. So the album comes out in around October, is that right? Yeah, we're aiming for October. That's what I've promised people, so yeah. um, that's what it will be. Now, I've, I've, the tunes are all written, Yeah. so now it's just a matter of uh, putting down the drum tracks for a bunch of them Yeah. and staying at home and recording and, and then going through the grief of mixing mm-hmm. and uh, mastering and all that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be doing it and... I, I I just need to get it out of my system, Matt. Uh huh. Cool. All these things out of my system. Well, we're glad you're doing it because uh, the bits we've heard so far are awesome. So that's cool. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah. What's the best way for people to keep up to date with the album and, and just what you're doing in general? Uh, well, Facebook is the way to do it at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a Facebook page which is forward slash Bob Spencer Official. Right, Bob Spencer Official is the Facebook page. Okay, yeah. um, I'm not terribly good of it with Instagram and Twitter. Sure. Um, just because I, you know, I forget there are other things to do during the day. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, the other thing I will do is start blogging on my website, which is bobspencer.com.au. I'll start doing that soonish. Okay. I'm doing cool. some video blogs. So I intend to do some geeky stuff. Yeah. Like. Uh, Hey, this is what sort of microphone I like this week. Yeah, and great. I'll do some geeky stuff, stuff like that. Bearing in mind that this is just what works for me. Yeah. And you might go, that is just the dumbest rig I've ever seen, <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> cool. So I'll do some, I'll do some geeky stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Well, we'll we'll look out for that definitely, and um, we'll keep plugging, Thanks, plugging along the process. That's great. So Bob, Thank hey. You. Mate, thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic. My Mate, I've seen you play over the years in different places around around Sydney anyway when you're up in town. So it's um yeah, it's a great thrill and a pleasure to to have met you and, and talked guitars with you. It's really cool. I I really appreciate your time, Matt. Thank you very much. Cool. Cheers. All right, we'll we'll talk soon and we'll look out uh for the next geeky update from you. All right. <laughs> Take care, mate. Thanks Cheers, a mate. lot. See ya. Alright. Ciao. All right, there it was, Bob Spencer and Brett Kingman, both in replay from 2016. Those guys both doing some really great stuff. They'll be at the Melbourne uh, Guitar Show coming up in early August 2017. Check that out. And remember, we'll be back on July 8th or 9th uh, with all new episodes of the Guitar Speak podcast. But I hope you enjoyed today's conversations and uh, we'll be back with you soon. Remember, we're on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and... uh, all that kind of stuff. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. 
All right, my name is Matt Wakeling. We're out of here. We'll see you next time on the Guitar Speak podcast. Bye now.